0: Before we begin this episode, a few words from this week's sponsors of the show. First of all, I'm pleased that once again the show's sponsor this week is Hangman, the latest thriller in the ragdoll series by rising star in British crime fiction Daniel Cole. Think classic cat and mouse thrillers like The Bone Collector or Seven. If you love those, then I'm sure you'll love the latest part of Daniel Cole's ragdoll series Hangman, which is out now in paperback from Trapeze Publishers. It's a high concept thriller that follows on from the 2017 Sunday Times bestseller Ragdoll where Daniel's established lead character DCI Emily Baxter this time finds herself racing against the clock to catch a killer who's mounting up body after body on both sides of the Atlantic and is always one step ahead. You've got a detective with no one she can trust locked in a battle of wits with a gruesome determined killer who's got nothing to lose. Don't worry if you think, oh but I haven't read Ragdoll. Hangman works just as well as a standalone thriller as it does as part of a series. And it's a series that can count a number of established crime fiction authors as fans already. Such as best-selling author MJ Arledge, who said, It's a brilliant breathless thriller. If you liked Seven, you'll love this. And Rachel Abbott, who simply called Daniel a star. High praise indeed, and Daniel in his own words has soaked up the international success of Ragdoll. He's tweaked it and set himself the task of hopefully surprising everybody by writing an even better story than the first. If you think that sounds as good as I do, then you can judge for yourself. The latest in the Ragdoll series Hangman is out now in paperback from all good high street and online bookstores, and you can find a link to get your copy in the show notes of this week's episode. Your life is hanging by a thread, but who's pulling the strings? You can find out in Hangman, out now in paperback. Like me, do you enjoy a craft beer? Well, how would you enjoy a free case of craft beer with Christmas coming up? As a listener to the show, I'm pleased to say that to say thanks for doing so, My friends at Beer52 have teamed up with a true crime enthusiast to make this possible. You can just head over to beer52.com forward slash true crime, that's beer52.com forward slash true crime to claim yourself a free case of special craft beers. Beer52 searched over the world's greatest breweries for incredible, exclusive small batch craft beers that they bring back to their members, and that's made them the world's most popular monthly craft beer discovery club. Each month focuses on a different country or theme and listeners to the show who sign up now will be able to discover some great beers as part of the West Country Road Trip Month. This month you're getting a mix of great beers from some fledgling brewers from the Bristol area such as Firebrand with their refreshing New England IPA, Lost and Grounded with a fabulous Keller Pilsner and the Wild Beer Company with their intriguing Sleeping Limes but to name just a few. These aren't your standard supermarket fodder beers. Beer 52 were kind enough to send me a case that I thoroughly enjoyed trying, believe me, and those Bristol brewers certainly know this stuff, I can tell you. Fancy a case then? Well, as a listener to the show, you get the opportunity to try your first case for free. All you have to pay is £5.95 postage costs. For that, you get 8 hand-picked Ace Craft beers, but that's not all you get. Included in the box is a 100-page magazine called Ferment, which is filled with all sorts of features and information about your beers, how they're made, where they're sourced from. You even get a snack to enjoy with your beers as well, because that always goes hand in hand, doesn't it? So that's 8 fabulous beers, a 100-page magazine and a snack for just £5.95 postage. What's to think about? It's a no-brainer, really. If you like lighter beers, then choose the light case. If you're a fan of a darker drop, get yourself the mixed case. You can tailor the box to suit your preferences and you can rate and review all of the beers on the Beer52 website. And there's no minimum commitment with it. You can just take the free case and see what you think. And if it's not really your thing, then no worries, you can pause or cancel anytime. It's simple. Don't miss the chance to get yourself some unique, interesting beers in for Crimbo. Just go to beer52.com forward slash true crime. That's beer Fifty Two. .com forward slash true crime to claim your free case today. Hey guys, a warm welcome from the corner of North Wales where the True Crime Enthusiast podcast comes from, seeking out the obscure and forgotten cases from the UK and Ireland. I'm Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and I thank you for joining me this week. If you're a new listener, then hey, it's fantastic to have you here, and I hope that you'll stick around to become an old friend too. Thanks too for the continuing support and shares of the show, with special thanks this week going to the new Patreon supporters the show has, that's namely Thomas Forden, Joe Weston, Tom Wright, Michael Schlepp, and Sarah House. Hope that you guys have enjoyed the bonus content of 11 bonus full-length episodes that are now up there exclusive to Patreon supporters. December's went up just a few days ago. Anyone else who fancies becoming a supporter, then it's very simple. There's a link to the Patreon page always with the episode show notes, or it can be found by seeking out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on the Patreon site. Just look for the creepy hand on the window, that's the show logo, and that's the Badger, just go from there. There are all different tiers available, and you can support for extra monthly content for a very reasonable price. As I've said before, it costs less than nicking two trolleys from a supermarket. For this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, we're off back to the early 1990s and to the city of Leeds in West Yorkshire. Leeds is a large city that's no stranger to crime and terror, having been part of the hunting ground of the Yorkshire Ripper a decade or so before. And in the early 1990s, a masked sex attacker terrorised an area of Leeds that's one of its most popular visiting spots, a 26 hectare beauty spot named Woodhouse Moor, or more commonly known as Hyde Park. It's a popular large park that borders the University of Leeds, and it was the students here that the attacker focused upon as his prey. The attacks were committed by an offender that if hadn't been stopped when he was, could quite possibly have become a killer. And how he was caught and stopped is quite a remarkable story. It is quite an unfamiliar case and is relatively little available for research about the crimes, but I'm sure it's a case that you won't forget quickly. This week's episode deals with sex crimes and therefore contains graphic descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting. Details included in the episode are not to sensationalise any of the aspects of the crimes that you'll hear within, but are included because they're integral to the account. As always with cases such as these, I've tried to remain sensitive to those involved and as such, anonymity has been used within. Now and again I might let my own opinion slip into the narrative, but there's nothing new there and I don't make any secret of how much I despise sex offenders, particularly those who rape. It's an awful crime. But please be extra advised this week, discretion is especially advised. With that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast, as this week we look back at the case of the Beast of Woodhouse Moor. The 26th of October 1992 had been a great evening, but by one fifty am the girl was ready to go home. There'd been the usual few drinks and dancing, but the other two girls she'd been out with that evening had already left, and she was faced with a walk home alone from the Leeds City Centre nightclub. This didn't particularly bother her walking home alone, she lived relatively near to Leeds University in the Woodhouse Lane area northwest of the City Centre, and at that time there were usually plenty of people still milling about. The route home that she was taking skirted Woodhouse Moor, a large expanse of open parkland not far from the City Centre, and as she skirted up a track, a shortcut that went behind the parade of shops on the busy road junction leading from the A660 road onto a path leading through the park, she was suddenly attacked from behind by a man. He pushed her so violently in the back that she fell heavily forward, and then whilst one of his hands gripped her throat, the other covered her mouth to stifle any screams. In her terror, she could see that the man was masked in a balaclava, and struggling against him, she attempted to fight him off. Covering her eyes, he leant forward and whispered to her, Carry on doing that, or make a sound, and I'll kill you. She was then dragged in a headlock into a nearby clump of bushes, where her attacker again pushed her to the ground and knelt astride her, using his body weight to pin her down. He then began quizzing her, asking her her age and whether she'd done it before, before ordering her to sit up. He then pulled his trousers down to his knees and forced the girl to give him oral sex before he then removed her own jeans and underwear and began touching her indecently. He then fully raped her before once again forcing her to perform oral sex on him. After he was finished he then calmly got up pulled up his trousers and walked off before breaking into a run until he was out of the girl's sight. She was left just sat there in a state of near undress. Shocked, appalled and devastated at the sickening act that had just happened. That's a nightmare that I can't even imagine what it must be like. An act I find absolutely sickening and appalling. What I've just described I have somewhat toned down. Although it's important to convey a picture of the sickening attack. Which I'm sure that you guys can envisage fully. And it wasn't his first attack not by a long shot. His first attack had been two years before, back in October 1990, where a 22-year-old student had been attending a 21st birthday party at News Nightclub in Leeds City Square. She'd left there at about 12.15am to walk home, not bothered too much as the route that she was taking back skirted a well-lit main road with plenty of passing traffic. It was a cold, rainy night, so she decided to take a shortcut through the Woodhouse Moor Park, hoping for some shelter from the trees. Although it was dark on the park footpath, she felt buoyed because she could still see the lights of the main road. Suddenly, someone grabbed her from behind and forced her to the ground. She desperately fought back, kicking and screaming, but he commanded her to shut up and then undid both his own trousers and hers. Attempting to get her to perform oral sex upon him, Her continued struggle seemed to dissuade the attacker and he gave up the assault and ran off into the darkness of the park, leaving the dishevelled and frightened girl to run home. The struggle had left her bruised all over her body and once she reached home, she contacted police and reported the attack. She described the attacker as being white, about 5 feet 9 inches tall, of medium build and age between 20 and 30 years old. He appeared to be clean shaven spoke with a local accent and wore dark casual clothing he had something covering his face too but she was unsure as to whether this was a scarf or a hood eight months later he struck again the victim this time was again a student and on the 28th of june 1991 she like the first girl had been to a party to celebrate the end of her final exams it was the final day of the summer term At about half past midnight she set off to walk home to the house that she shared with other students which was coincidentally near to where the first girl who'd been attacked lived. The route home that she took was the same one this girl had taken and like the first girl she opted to take the shortcut through Woodhouse Moor Park. She'd only gone a short distance when she was grabbed from behind and felt a woolen glove covering her mouth as she was pulled backwards. Calling her to fall and land heavily on the stony ground. In an instant, her attacker was kneeling across her knees, immobilizing her. Although he had a balaclava on, she could make out that he was dark skinned, and in a voice that had a hint of a foreign accent, he said to her, You do what I want, or I kill you. I won't hurt you if you do what I want. In this attack, he produced a knife, a short handled penknife with a three inch blade which he stroked menacingly up the girl's left arm across her neck and down the front of her top he then forced her to perform oral sex upon him when this was finished he made the girl stand up and led her to a more secluded darker part of the park but as he did so she slipped out of her coat which he was holding and ran towards her home which was only seconds away She reached the street and hammered on the door of the nearest house where a friend of hers lived but there was no answer and as she turned to run towards another house she came face to face with her masked attacker again. Imagine how frightening that must be, the terror of the actual assault is bad enough isn't it but to then think you've escaped only to be confronted with your masked attacker still there it must be unimaginable screaming she fled through the gardens on the street pursued by the attacker who only fled when out of desperation to bring awareness to the situation the girl picked up and threw a brick through a window with the light still on again this attack was immediately reported to police and the girl gave a description of an attacker who was dark-skinned about 20 to 30 years old of average build and one who spoke in stilted english possibly being of asian descent because of the proximity and similarity to the October 1990 attack, police were convinced that they'd been committed by the same man. And just 23 hours later, he struck again. A 20-year-old girl out for an evening with her boyfriend in the city centre had rowed with him, and at about 11.45pm on Saturday the 29th of June, she decided to walk home alone where a journey took her past the university and onto the path in the park which ran 10 yards from and parallel to woodhouse lane she suddenly noticed a man in a balaclava who was running parallel with her heading in the same direction but deeper in the park and then he altered his course and ran directly at her grabbing her from behind as with the other girls he put one arm around her neck and the other covered her mouth to prevent any screams Then he punched her repeatedly in the face. She managed to scream, and then as luck would have it, two passing pedestrians came close by, alerted. This was enough to spook the attacker, and wriggling free, he ran off into the park. So the girl was safe, but she was left covered in blood and badly bruised, and she offered the same description. Dark-skinned, stockily built, masked. This time, she added that his eyes were very wide, dark, and frightening. Police looked at the three attacks and knew that they were looking for a dangerous man indeed, one who was out fully intending to commit appalling sex attacks against vulnerable women, and who could quite possibly go on to kill if he wasn't stopped. The violence and determination had increased each time, as though he was refining his method of attack, as had the use of a knife and the frequency between attacks, two in less than a day. The linking factor, apart from a woman walking alone, was woodhouse Moor park was this someone who lived in the local area who knew the park well did he choose it to stalk and attack women in because it had two appealing factors to him it had darkness trees and bushes that would provide good cover and it was situated in a perfect spot where a number of lone women would be passing by within easy attacking distance Nine months passed after this attack before he struck again at 9.20pm on the 19th of March 1992. This time a 19 year old student out for an evening walk was walking down Woodhouse Lane again in full view of the busy main road. A short distance down the road she looked over his shoulder to see a masked man running at her from the middle of the open expanse of the park. Before she realised what was happening he grabbed her clothing and pulled her off the path into the park. Here he threw her to the ground and placed a gloved hand over her mouth before turning her onto her stomach and punching her savagely twice in the head to subdue her. She couldn't breathe in this position and in terror struggled wildly to get free but she stopped struggling when he said to her Stop it or I'll suffocate you to death. She then had to undergo an appalling lengthy assault in which she was indecently assaulted and forced to perform oral sex upon her attacker in fear of her life not to she complied and when the attacker had ejaculated which the girl instinctively spat out and wiped on her sleeve he stood up, fastened his trousers and ran out of the park she was left battered and sore and staggering to the roadside screamed until a passerby came to her aid when police arrived the description gleaned from the woman was all too familiar by now a man in his twenties, dressed all in black of a mixed race and wearing a woollen hat or balaclava he spoke good english but with a hint of a foreign accent but with this attack police had their first major breakthrough in the hunt they had no suspects in the investigation and there was no connection between the women attacked apart from they'd been in the vicinity of the park but with this attack they had a sample of the attacker's dna in the latest and previous attacks he'd shown a disregard for forensic awareness he'd not used a condom and he'd ejaculated although samples of this were before unable to be collected this time because the girl he had attacked had wiped her mouth on his sleeve because you, you would do because that's just disgusting isn't it there was a dna trace of the rapist left on her clothing if a suspect were now identified he could be easily eliminated from inquiries with a dna comparison test against the sample just over two months later he struck for the fifth time although the attack was not reported for several months it was another student who at 11:40 pm on the evening of the 26th of may 1992 had been out for an evening with friends and had walked part of the way home with a group to the top of woodhouse lane Where she'd broken off from them and continued on her own to a shortcut through the park. She didn't feel threatened as she could be seen from both directions due to the open expanse of the park, but when she was about a third of the way down the path, she saw a man running towards her. A hood and a scarf covered his face, leaving only his eyes visible, and he grabbed her from behind, locked an arm around her throat, and dragged her into the darkness she struggled violently but was pinned face down on the grass whilst her attacker sat on her back immobilizing her yet she still thrashed and fought wildly and she managed to grab her attacker's testicles and dig her fingernails in with strength at the same time screaming to two men that she saw walking a dog some distance off as the men walked over alerted by her screams the attacker ran off the woman shrugged off the attack despite how terrifying it must have been and she didn't report it for another five months, after the attacker had struck again, the attack that was described at the open of the episode. I'm just glad she got to crush his nuts, to be honest. By this time, a periodic watch had been kept on the park, and police presence in the area had been increased, which may have kept the attacker at bay. Yet crime doesn't stand still does it? Uniformed police cannot foretell where they'll be needed and on each occasion that the rapist struck there was no sign of any police in the near area. All six attacks were linked as being committed by the same man, the fourth and sixth attacks definitively by matching DNA samples and an inquiry was running from Milgarth police station in Leeds. The task force had concentrated its house-to-house inquiries on the areas immediately around the park as there was a consensus that this man lived within walking distance of it and it was familiar to him. Offenders offend where they know and they feel comfortable, don't they? But equally, there was the possibility that he may have transported into the area. The late night timings of the majority of the attacks ruled him out using public transport to get away after the attack so he either walked or had a car or motorcycle parked nearby it was also considered that he might have some connection to the university most of those attacked had been students and all of them had a similar physical profile this could also be the reason for covering his face or wearing a balaclava because he might subsequently be recognized around the campus the university and the students' union were obviously concerned by the attacks and the risks posed to its female students. It wasn't too long since the spectre of the Yorkshire Ripper had hung over the area after all. Police liaised with the students' union and senior faculty members about what could be done to reduce any risk, leading to personal attack alarms being given to female students and female-only public transport being arranged. Meanwhile, the park was kept under observation as thorough as possible, police were placed on rooftops of university buildings that overlooked the park and in what is an always risky strategy female police officers were used as decoys in an attempt to flush the attacker out the house-to-house inquiries continued difficult in an area largely populated with bedsits that contained a transient population students would of course come and go There was a sizable multiracial community in the area as well and little to eliminate suspects by way of physical description so the next major step would be a mass blooding. Like the one that caught Colin Pitchfork only a few years earlier DNA samples from each male who lived in the area would be collected if they could not satisfactorily be eliminated from the inquiry by other means. But before this police needed to know exactly who lived in the area so they'd know if a suspect had left before they got to him which was an understandably difficult task in such a transient population and of course as we've said he may not have even lived in the immediate area if he was a commuter rapist the best police could hope for was to catch him when he returned to commit another offence which was the outcome that no one wanted the observations were kept up through all hours but he didn't reappear perhaps put off by the massive media coverage of the crimes. As Christmas 1992 approached, the majority of the students at Leeds University would be going home for the festive holidays, and the inquiry was scaled down until the new term started, because the threat level was assessed as being much lower. Then on Monday the 4th of January, a report came in of yet another attack. This time, the victim being a girl of just sixteen years old, the reported attack had taken place at nine thirty p m on Saturday, the second of January nineteen ninety three coincidentally, twelve years to the very day that another man who had once before brought terror to the University of Leeds, Peter Sutcliffe, was arrested in Sheffield for the Yorkshire Ripper murders. But due to being too distressed, the 16 year old had not reported the attack until Monday the 4th. She lived in a community home on the outskirts of Leeds and had spent that Saturday hanging about with friends, shopping in the Merion Centre shopping park in the centre of Leeds and going bowling. She described to police how at about 8.45pm she set off in the direction of home towards Hyde Park, using a different route from the one taken by the other victims she passed through the grounds of Leeds Royal Infirmary Hospital before ultimately coming out onto Clarendon Road, a road that leads to the perimeter of Woodhouse Moor Park but one on the opposite side of the large park from where the others had been attacked. She described making her way diagonally across the park using one of the footpaths and as she neared the bowling green situated there, at about 9.35pm she heard a rustling sound behind her. As she readied herself to turn around to see the cause, a hand came from behind and covered her mouth, preventing her from screaming. She was shocked to the core and too frightened to scream or to try to react in any way. Her attacker had dragged her a short distance to a grassy area nearby, then had pushed her to the ground and sat astride her as she lay on her back, pinning her upper forearms to her sides with his knees. Although she screamed hysterically and lashed out with her legs as best that she could, the attacker's weight and superior strength overpowered her. She then suffered a horrific graphic ordeal that she tried to fight off, culminating in her attacker raping her and then walking off, leaving her lying on the ground crying. Shaking and still crying, she claimed that she decided to get home first before reporting it there and then to police, so she made her way to catch a bus. By the time she'd managed to get one, she claimed that she'd stopped crying but was still distressed and once home she'd immediately taken a bath although she'd had ample opportunity to report the rape either to her friends or any of the staff at the home she did neither of these it was a behavior the following day that brought matters to a head as during that day she kicked a member of staff who told her off for scratching a table and then took a razor blade from her room and repeatedly slashed her left forearm by midnight she'd asked another girl at the home what happens when you tell someone you've been raped this comment was passed back on to key worker staff at the home who contacted police and the following morning specially trained officers used to interviewing victims of child abuse arrived to speak to the girl a statement was taken in which she described the rape and details about her attacker and further claimed that her actions that sunday and the altercation with staff and the self-harm were as a result of the anger and shame she felt and not being able to verbally express her feelings about what had happened she was also medically examined but no forensic evidence was found owing to the 36 hours that had elapsed plus the fact that she'd immediately had a bath when she'd gotten home the girl described her attacker as being asian aged between 20 and 25 years old about 5 feet 10 inches in height slim with short hair and a wispy moustache he was clad in dark clothing but no mention was made of a mask or any hood covering his features. There was a chance that she could help provide a very good artist's impression of the man. But reading a statement, the officer leading the inquiry, Detective Superintendent Bob Taylor, a guy who we've met before on the show actually, as he was the detective who led the squad that caught the one-legged train spotter Michael Sams, the son of a bitch that we met last series in the one-legged train spotter trilogy superintendent taylor began to have some doubts about his story the location of the attack would suggest that it was the same guy although it was on the completely opposite side of the park from where he'd attacked the other victims yet there was no medical or forensic evidence available because she'd reported the rape late and the description that she gave of the struggle that she had put up didn't correspond with the injuries to her body she had just a small bruise on her inner left thigh and a slight bruise above her right knee now while the absence of any injuries would have been understandable if she'd submitted completely she claimed that she'd put up a spirited fight against her attacker she also mentioned no conversation on the part of the rapist which was a deviation from the previous attacks where the attacker had been quite vocal forceful and had spoken to the victims sometimes at great length she couldn't describe what his voice sounded like and there was also the fact that her attacker had not covered his face so based on this police were now faced with a number of possible scenarios it was the same man the attacker had shifted slightly his hunting ground and had disposed of covering his face worryingly because he may not have intended from now on to leave anybody alive to possibly identify him it was a different rapist and police now had two of them operating independently of each other in the same general area or the girl wasn't being honest and there hadn't been an attack nevertheless the inquiry continued as though it was the Woodhouse rapists as the press had taken to calling him his latest attack Bob Taylor appeared on Yorkshire Television's regional news programme Calendar News on the 5th of January 1993 where he once again urged caution to all women not just around the woodhouse Moor park area but across the whole of leeds in general and to not go out alone if possible in the hours of darkness he put across the similarities in all of the attacks reported to date and stressed that police were doing all that they could to catch the attacker fearing that he wouldn't stop and could ultimately go on to kill someone all the time he expected that the attacker more likely than not living in leeds would be watching the news with express interest in what was being said about him and to attempt to learn about any police activity in the area in the hunt for him so bob taylor was cautious about what he said and he managed to strike a balance between not giving away any specifics of the investigation whilst all the while still emphasizing what a threat this man was and then on the fourteenth of january there was an unexpected development. The rapist contacted police. Detective Chief Superintendent Taylor was preparing for a television interview to take place in the incident room hunting for the rapist when he was handed a pile of that day's routine post. Usual procedure was for his secretary to routinely open all mail that was addressed to him unless it was marked private and or confidential. So when she'd come across a letter marked Detective Superintendent B. Taylor, Milgarth Police Station, Leeds, LS2 she'd opened it without hesitation. The postmark on the envelope showed that it had been processed in Leeds the previous day and inside was a single sheet of paper containing the following handwritten letter in block capitals. Detective Superintendent Taylor I'm the one you're looking for regarding most of the incidents on Woodhouse Moor. If you don't believe me check these facts. The girl I got in March 92 had shoulder length blonde hair and was wearing a dark dungaree style outfit under her coat. I took a keys off her. The girl I got in October 92 had brown permed hair beyond her shoulders. She wore a woolen cardigan and casual trousers. I made both of them do oral. The October girl was lying when she said that I raped her. As yet, I have not raped anybody. Which brings me to my next point. The joker who raped the girl on January 2nd, 93 was not me. He was jumping on the bandwagon. He was a fool. He showed his face. Yours sincerely, Jack the Stripper. Now the majority of well-publicised police investigations will often get time wasters or malicious cranks who contact the police in such a way. But there was something about this letter that rang true. No information had been released to the press about descriptions of the victims or what they were wearing and both points that the author had stated about what the victims were wearing was correct. He was also spot on about the hair colour and style mentioned for each of the attacks that he'd named and the March 1992 victim had indeed lost her keys, or so she'd thought she'd lost her keys. Needless to say, she had her locks changed immediately under police advice. To write to police like this, it seemed that the rapist was confident of not being caught. Police wondered at the purpose of the letter. Was it mockery, as calling himself Jack the Stripper would suggest, or was he indignant at being blamed for the latest attack Which police were admittedly unsure was by the same man or that it had even happened. They were also decidedly unhappy with the phrase, as of yet, I've not raped anybody. Did this guy seriously believe that he hadn't yet committed rape? Because he certainly had several times in the eyes of the law. I mean, it's clearly defined as unlawful sexual intercourse or any other sexual penetration of the vagina, anus, or mouth of another person with or without force by a sex organ other or body part or foreign object without the consent of the victim so i would say that based on that his crimes are pretty clear-cut really rapist the women he'd attacked up to then would argue the point with him that he wasn't too i'm quite sure of that the letter was a major breakthrough and it and the envelope that it had come in were sealed in an evidence bag which was marked RET1 as an exhibit. It was then taken for forensic examination by a senior member of the inquiry team, although nothing was said for the TV interview Bob Taylor was giving. This development and piece of evidence would be held back for a later time. The letter would have to first go through a series of examinations, looking for traces of the author's DNA, fingerprint analysis, analysis of the paper that it had been written on, the ink that it had been written with, star sign, kitchen sink, cuddly toy, you get the idea. It would also go for a process known as ESDA testing, which is a method used to reveal impressions and indentations on paper. It may lead to an indentation of an earlier message on the letter that may give insight to the author's identity, maybe part of an address or a telephone number, something like that. By Monday the 18th of January, the inquiry team received the news that there may just be a breakthrough. There'd be no fingerprints or DNA traces on the letter, but the paper that the author had written his letter on was deemed to have been torn from a pad, an ESDA examination had indeed revealed indentations of a previous letter most likely the very one written before the letter detective chief superintendent taylor had received traces of an indented but unreadable signature proceeded with the identifiable letters d and m were found but the most exciting breakthrough was that part of a name and address had also been identifiable on the paper Highlighted on the copy police had received back after the testing were the words Mr Jack There was also part of a two-figure number beginning with two and the first part of a street name Neville Using a map and the postmark from the envelope of the letter attention was soon focused on an area of East Leeds which was just four miles from Woodhouse Moor Park in this area there was an interconnected network of no less than 8 residential streets with the prefix neville a check of the electoral roll for the area was undertaken and eventually one name stood out on the list that managed to tick all of the right boxes a 27 year old man of mixed race david martin jackson lived at number 28 neville view he fitted the general physical description of the woodhouse moor rapist but a check revealed that he had no criminal record and was actually an active member of the New Testament Church of God in Leeds, near to where his in-laws lived, who were also active members of the same church. What was more, Jackson had only married his wife Jennifer in September 1992. If he was the rapist, he would have been attacking women all through his engagement and the preparations for his wedding and would have committed his sixth attack within days of returning from his honeymoon i know right a church going newlywed wouldn't strike you as a likely masked rapist would they and this was on the minds of police as they made a check with the department of social security for a sample of jackson's handwriting which the soch had on file from documents that they held they were forced to rethink jackson as being unlikely when checks of Jackson's signature against the indentation that had been discovered on the letter were found to be a perfect match. So this meant one of two things. He'd certainly written the preceding letter on the pad that the letter sent to police had been written from, which had been all but confirmed as having been written by the rapist. A crank or vindictive police officer creating a hoax had been discounted, and the undisclosed information contained within the letter was too accurate for it not to have been. Either Jackson had written the letter to police or someone closely connected to him had meaning that either he was the attacker or he had a strong link to him. As police prepared to interview Jackson they set about getting ready a line of questioning for him. They needed to know if he had alibis for the dates of the attacks. They would test his handwriting to see if it matched the letter and would of course take a sample of his DNA for comparison against that of the Woodhouse Moor rapist. His wardrobe would be seized for examination as his clothing may reveal any possible forensic traces linking the victims to him, and recent family photographs would be checked for clothing matching that described as being worn by the attacker in case he disposed of anything. At 6.35am on the morning of Thursday, the 21st of January, 1993, David Martin Jackson was arrested at his two bedroom semi-detached house in Neville View East Leeds in front of his shocked wife Jennifer. Both he and her appeared absolutely dumbfounded at the arrest and as both were escorted out of the house and taken to Milgarth Police Station a forensic and search team moved into the property to begin doing their thing. Found during this search was a notepad of the type on which the letter to police had been written as well as a lead street map with a card marking the page featuring the Hyde Park area, the Woodhouse Moor Park. Detective Sergeant John Church and Detective Constable Joanne Regan were the officers selected to interview Jackson at Milgarth Police Station. Although both were strongly skilled interviewers, the use of Detective Constable Regan was as much a tactical psychological move as a practical one. A female being present during the interview of the man widely suspected to be the Woodhouse Moor rapist, someone who took pleasure in the control and sexual dominance of female victims, would unsettle him and put him on the back foot from the off. There was, however, the possibility that Jackson may not say anything in her presence, he might be embarrassed and uncomfortable to speak about such matters in the company of a woman. Police needn't have worried about this. Soon after the interviews began, Jackson confessed the 1992 March and October attacks when he was confronted with the likelihood that his DNA sample taken from him upon arrest would match the DNA sample from the rapist the police had managed to obtain from the victim's sleeves when analysed at the lab. He said, Yeah, I did attack them too. I did make them give me oral sex, but I didn't rape the second one. His denial of rape was pure ignorance of the law. In its eyes, as we've said, he was absolutely completely a rapist. Forced to, he'd admitted only what he thought police could prove, although he denied each of the other attacks. When asked about the letter, he admitted writing it and said, I wrote it, it was stupid. I wanted you to know that I didn't do the one in January and that there was a real rapist out there. Can you believe the cloud cuckoo land that this bellend was living in? As if a serial sex attacker couldn't see himself as a real rapist. What do you think he'd been doing? Just having a bit of fun or some kind of horseplay? Some people boggle the mind, don't they? They really do. So Jackson had admitted two attacks and writing the letter plus had no alibi for the dates of the others except for the attack reported by the 16 year old girl as occurring on the 2nd of January. Jackson claimed to have been a religious retreat in Long Eaton in Derbyshire with his wife and in-laws over this period a fact which they confirmed. Police who had long since had doubts as to the girl's story looked again at the account that she'd given. The friends that she'd been with that Saturday were spoken to and they agreed with everything that she'd said in a statement apart from her walking home alone. One of them even claimed that she'd headed home with a girl and they'd caught a bus together 45 minutes before the time she claimed that she was attacked. Further a log of travel movements revealed that the bus that the girl claimed she had caught after the attack had actually passed by the stop 15 minutes before. Which would have been before her alleged rape. With strong evidence that now pointed to her having made up the entire story, the girl was again brought in for interview and ended up being reported for wasting police time. She'd made up the whole story in an attention seeking stunt, and it had fitted around gleaned details about the actual Woodhouse Moore rapist attacks that she'd gathered from newspaper reports. And yet through a strange sequence of events it was this bogus rape claim that ultimately led to the arrest of the actual rapist because it spurred him to write to police. Funny old world isn't it? Because David Jackson had confessed to two of the attacks he was able to be charged without the DNA sample coming back which it did of course a few days later and it was a 100% match to that from the rapes. Jackson was charged with all six attacks linked to the Woodhouse Moor rapist and was remanded in custody awaiting trial, which was expected to last three weeks and was to be held at Leeds Crown Court. The investigating team, knowing that if he was found guilty, Jackson would be facing a lengthy custodial sentence, was therefore unsurprised when they learned that he intended to plead not guilty and to deny all of the charges against him he'd lose everything his new wife included if he was proven to be a rapist. Jackson had managed to provide alibi evidence for the March and May 1992 attacks in statements given by his wife, and he was also claiming that on the June day when the rapist had attacked two women in less than 24 hours, he was actually at a religious convention more than 250 miles away in Brighton. Now we only had to make the jury believe one alibi for a DNA linked attack and they would of course have to reject the other one. His wife, family and friends all believed that he was innocent. How could a solid church-going young man from a good family recently married with an attractive wife possibly do something like this? Why would he need or want to stalk young women? So how did Jackson hope to make this work? It was the collective opinion of both police and prosecuting counsel that the line of defence Jackson would follow was by claiming that he was the victim of unscrupulous policing. His only possible defence could be that a police officer had contaminated the clothing of two of the rapist victims with his own sperm then sent these to forensics where a DNA sample would be raised. The officer would then have to write a letter which linked Jackson and when he was arrested and DNA taken from him, the officer would have then had to switch the DNA samples around, so the one going off to the lab, purportedly from Jackson, would actually be the officer's own, targeting an innocent church-going newlywed for reasons unknown. Now that sounds as logical and believable as the BBC being able to justify why they got rid of Crimewatch, doesn't it? BBC, you continue to be twats. The trial of David Martin Jackson began at Leeds Crown Court on February 24th 1994 where he was charged with one charge of rape, three charges of indecent assault, two of attempted indecent assault and four of assault occasioning actual bodily harm and the prosecution was led by Paul Worsley QC one of the most respected advocates on the northern court circuit. As the prosecution case was outlined for the court the first witness called was the victim from the first of the two attacks within 24 hours in June 1991. She made her way through the packed courtroom to the witness box and then burst into tears as she was given the oath. What a traumatic ordeal that must be to it must be an awful ordeal to do something like that it really must. When she'd composed herself, she described to the jury how she was attacked in June 1991 after celebrating with friends the end of her final exams and her last night in Leeds. She was walking home along Woodhouse Lane at about midnight when a man grabbed her from behind, put his hands over her mouth and pulled her to the ground. The man, who wore gloves and a balaclava, forced her onto her back and knelt astride her. The woman told the court, I struggled with him for quite a while I couldn't breathe I thought I was going to pass out he said you do what I want or I'll hurt you or kill you she went on to describe how the man then pulled out a penknife with the blade opened and ran it across her arm her neck and down her top he then forced her to perform a sex act upon him in a desperation to escape from him the woman sprained her ankle I felt like I'd been kicked from head to toe she said and she listed the injuries that she'd received in the assault, cuts on her hands and bruising to her legs, hips and forehead. Throughout her evidence, David Martin Jackson listened from the dock, showing no emotion whatsoever. Several of the other women who'd been attacked were then all to bravely tell their stories to the court. I mean, the statements could easily have been read out to the jury but it's unlikely to create the same impact as seeing and hearing the person concerned stood there in the court telling this story. That must be much more powerful, mustn't it? And they each painted a chillingly similar picture. One student told the court that she'd had to take a year off her studies after being attacked on the night of March 19th, 1992. The story was the same as the previous witness, She'd been walking along Woodhouse Lane towards Hyde Park when she became aware of a man behind her. The man put his arm round her throat and pushed her to the ground. He had big black padded gloves on his hands which he put over her throat and mouth. She tried to bite his fingers in defence but only managed to bite the material. He then turned her onto her stomach and kept his hand over her mouth. The woman told the court I thought I was going to die. I couldn't really breathe he told me to stop struggling or he would kill me she then said that the man punched her two or three times before dragging her towards trees further in the park where he committed indecent acts against her the man then ran off and she ran towards the main road where a passing couple helped her the jury also heard how another victim pictured her own funeral as the masked attacker prepared to rape her she told the jury that she didn't struggle Because she thought the man was going to kill her. She said, I just pictured mum and dad going to my funeral. Since the attack, I've developed a nervous disorder. I can't walk in the streets anymore. Someone has to come with me now. The victim of the fifth attack, who'd fought back against the attacker, the one who'd sort of grabbed him in the crackers, you know, told the jury, I thought, I'm not having any of this, describing how she'd grabbed the man's testicles i had long nails then he just froze and didn't say anything i was shouting at him to get off me she said that the man ran off when two men approached with a dog once all of the victims had given their evidence the court then heard forensic expert testimony about the letter that police had received in the letter the man admitted being responsible for three sex assaults but denied a rape attack claiming it was someone jumping on the bandwagon Mr. Worsley told the court how on January the 4th the previous year, a 16-year-old girl in care in Otley reported that she'd been raped on the evening of January the 2nd while walking across Woodhouse Moor. The report of this alleged attack received much publicity, but there were marked differences between this and the earlier attacks. Indeed, the girl was later to confess that there'd never been such an attack, but at the time the police treated it seriously and the press gave details of it mr worsley told the court the crown says it prompted a swift response from the man who had truly attacked women on woodhouse moor and had been responsible for earlier attacks he did not apparently like the idea of someone else carrying out attacks in this area nor apparently did he like the idea of being associated or blamed for a rape for which he was not responsible the defendant he alleged then sent a letter to Detective Superintendent Taylor at Milgarth Police Station. It had a Leeds postmark dated January 12th 1993, a first class stamp, and it was received on the following day. The letter was written in block capitals, and Mr Worsley then read the letter out to the jury. Because of the information contained in the letter, police took it seriously, and the letter was sent together with the envelope it it had arrived in, to the forensic science laboratory at weatherby testifying mr anthony stockton of the forensic science laboratory said his tests made the possibility that anyone else had written the letter so remote it could not be ignored mr stockton described the esdm testing process to the court which involved putting a thin film over the letter and covering it with ink to find any impressions on the paper invisible to the naked eye he said that the examinations found impressions which included the initials d m a number and a part of an address from which led police to arrest jackson and to seize documents and notepaper from his house during a search mr stockton examined a notepad removed from jackson's house during this search and he found the same impressions on the back page as those on the jack the stripper letter That letter was once done in this pad and it is my opinion that Mr Jackson was the author, he said. Forensic scientist Mike Barber was next up to give evidence about the DNA analysis he'd performed after Jackson's arrest. Mr Barber said that a blood sample taken from Jackson after his arrest offered the same profile as semen found on the clothing of the third victim and the final victim who'd been raped. He said, I came to the conclusion that the results were approximately a 100 million times more likely to have occurred if the semen was deposited by David Martin Jackson rather than another man who was unrelated to him. He said the odds of this only altered when it came to males who were closely related to Jackson, for example a brother who would give a 1 in 400 chance of a match. Boom, always impressive that isn't it? Various police officers involved in the investigation were also called up to the witness box. Bob Taylor was called up no less than four times to clear up minor points raised by the defence and it soon became clear that Jackson was indeed attempting to go down the I've been fitted up route for a defence. The defence QC, Robert Smith, questioned each expert witness who was called thoroughly over the procedures used, how certain was the ESDA testing What kind of syringes were used to take a blood sample from Jackson? Could they be tampered with? You get the idea here, I'm sure. Yet everything that was put to the experts could be answered confidently and clearly, because there'd been no fitting up whatsoever. Every witness for the prosecution was impressive and commanding. On the seventh day of the trial, it was time for Jackson himself to take the stand his testimony was delayed somewhat when a member of the jury suffered a suspected heart attack in his seat just after jackson had begun giving evidence but he resumed doing so when the juror had been taken to hospital in an ambulance he portrayed himself as a recent and happily married man even showing the jury photographs taken of him and his wife jennifer on their wedding day and even on their florida honeymoon he told the court how they'd met at a church convention and had courted for five years before marrying just a short time before he was arrested. He regularly visited his in-laws, Clutell and Clarence Jones with her, and was a committed and active Christian from a Christian family. Jackson declared emphatically, That is not my DNA, it's not my blood. An analysis of a fresh blood sample will clear me. I've been begging my barrister to have my blood tested. I know the profile will be different to the profile they've got there. I know I'm innocent. The obvious course of action would be to do this, but British justice isn't flexible like that. This would mean adjourning the trial, ordering a retest, where regardless of the result, Jackson could just say the same thing, you've stitched me up yet again, and it could go on and on longer than a DFS sale or a series of the X Factor. The judge didn't give this a second thought, and the case proceeded to run. It had been shown that syringes used to take blood samples could be tampered with but not that they had been which was the cornerstone of Jackson's defence. He was also to say that when asked how he knew the contents of the Jack the Stripper letter details of which he had himself described to the interviewing officers I was able to read it because one of the officers put it on the table in front of me further he claimed that his knowledge of the attacks came from following the news coverage of the case at the time he dismissed outright the indentation on his notepad claiming i used the notepad whilst working in leeds library the real author must have written the letter using my pad he made one very unpleasant insensitive comment that showed his naivety and his true character and did absolutely nothing to endear him to the jury that he was so desperately trying to impress when he was asked by Mr. Worsley how he'd been able to correctly describe the March and October victims as being slim during an interview, Jackson actually replied, Well, you wouldn't rape a fat girl, would you? He actually said that, What a vile, insensitive piece of shit. Who says something like that? Awful thing to say. The defence case concluded with Jennifer Jackson and her parents all giving testimony on Jackson's behalf relating that they honestly believed he was innocent and he could not be the attacker. They agreed with and supported the alibis Jackson had given covering the times of attacks that he was either at a religious conference in Brighton or was picking Jennifer up from her nursing shifts at Leeds Seacroft Hospital. It transpired after the trial that Jackson never ever collected his wife from work the parents always did or jennifer caught the bus home closing speeches saw both prosecution and defense driving home the main points of the conflicting arguments with paul worsley hinting someone has a guilty secret robert smith retorted that the police involved in the case ranged from the efficient and patently honest detective superintendent taylor heading the investigation to detective sergeant church whose actions in this case leave much to be desired. The jurors were given the task of deciding, after summing up by both prosecution and defence, if Jackson had been falsely accused by a dishonest police officer, or whether it was all a charade by a vicious sex attacker who'd suggest anything rather than face his own culpability. On the 14th of March 1994, the jury of six men and five women retired to consider their verdicts after just 6 hours deliberating they returned guilty verdicts in relation to the march 1992 indecent assault and the rape and indecent assault of the october 1992 victim the offences that were linked by dna after spending the night in a hotel by 2:35 p.m the following afternoon the jury had returned guilty verdicts on all remaining charges three of the victims Jackson had attacked were in court to hear the verdict. As he sentenced Jackson to 12 years imprisonment, Judge Justice Harrison told the expressionless, remorseless rapist, You carried out a campaign of sex attacks that left young women in this area of Leeds afraid to go out at night. Offences such as these should be punished by a substantial period of imprisonment. You came from a decent Christian family, but you've let them down after the trial jackson's solicitor grace higgins said that a miscarriage of justice had been committed and that an appeal would be launched we shall be pursuing an appeal at the earliest possible opportunity and we shall also be launching a nationwide campaign to free david jackson as far as we're concerned david is innocent of all charges she said Jackson's wife and family later disassociated themselves from these comments and although he did appeal against his conviction it was rejected. He never once showed any remorse for his crimes and he continued to protest his innocence right up until he was released in 2001. Yeah this scumbag served just seven years in prison but he never had his blood sample retested. He made loads of noise throughout his trial about how there wasn't enough legal aid money to pay for another test, blah 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 blah, but the fact is that DNA tests don't cost too much to do, do they? And whatever it cost anyway, even if it was the earth, if you really were innocent, then you'd find the money from somewhere to prove your innocence by doing a simple test, wouldn't you? That is of course if you could. David Martin Jackson couldn't do this because his DNA matched that of the Woodhouse rapist, and he knew that, because it was him. His whereabouts today are unknown. That's a nice thought, isn't it? And following his conviction, it was discovered that even as a teenager, Jackson had some disturbing signs that he was already a potential sex offender. One neighbour of Jackson's who lived near him in Long Eaton in the 1970s described how he had to tell jackson off more than once after he'd caught him spying into his young daughter's bedroom whilst jackson also received a police caution at age 13 for indecent exposure after flashing at some passing schoolgirls from his bedroom window and 14 years later he was a fully fledged rapist what on earth had he done in the interim period There isn't very much able to research about Jackson except for what I've reproduced for the episode but here I get into my armchair pick up my pipe and have a bit of a peruse about him. I'm inclined to think that this guy must have committed other offences elsewhere perhaps not always of that magnitude but certainly other offences. These may not all have been reported or connected but you build up to stalk in a darkened park wearing a mask and armed with a knife to grab and rape lone females don't you? it doesn't happen because you're bored at nights it most likely began as flashing something he was certainly capable of as far back as 1977 maybe stealing underwear from clotheslines that kind of thing may have written pornographic letters or made obscene telephone calls but eventually even all of this will have plateaued for him and he began attacking women at some point some point much earlier than his first known attack i'd imagine I reckon there must be scores of offences out there, there is handiwork. Perhaps minor, and perhaps not. Why he chose the Woodhouse Moor area can only be speculated at. No connection for him to the area could be found during any research that I did for it. I also shook my head at him serving just seven years. If he continued to claim his innocence of the crimes, why was he allowed release five years early? You know, do the full 12 no rock hammer no poster of rackle welsh for you jackson yeah it shouldn't surprise me really i mean how often do we read with anger of ludicrous sentences that are passed down on criminals who are released after serving a pitiful amount of the deserved sentence but on the day that i was writing this episode i did read with some satisfaction that another sex attacker this one is a bit more widely known than jackson john warboys the black cab rapist is to be denied parole, get the flags out for common sense prevailing this is a guy suspected of attacking up to a hundred women, and he should be dying in the nick, not preparing for a release after serving nine years and I feel the same with Jackson. make no mistake those women that he attacked, we can only hope rebuilt their lives and moved on from what he did, But consider that word rebuilt. he's forever tainted their lives with his actions. And however much they've now moved on, I'm sure that they'll never forget it. I just hope that it hasn't defined them. Rape is a crime that angers and sickens me. In case you were in any doubt, you know, I might not have made that clear. And I hate the thought of a vile creature like Jackson being back on the streets, which he's been for many years now, knowing what he's done and the mocking sentence that he served for his crimes. He may now be living quietly he may be back with his family or live alone somewhere disowned and abandoned by them and he may now of course be a law-abiding citizen who knows where he is or what he's doing now. I just hope that it doesn't involve a mask and a lone female. What do you guys think then? Let's hear your thoughts in the thread for the episode which is now up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group. I don't start a separate thread for each episode anymore so comments can now be made underneath the episode link that I add to the group each week just after the episode is released. Or of course if you wish to chime in with your own thread that's cool as well. I look forward to hearing what you think. You can reach me through the usual social media channels where I'm never far away. And if you are tempted by what you've heard and you fancy a bit of extra enthusiast then you can head over to the Patreon page of the show also. Not only are there now 11 bonus episodes of the show up there for supporters, they're all full length as well, but coming very soon will be the first case feedback bonus post from me, where I'm sat down pretty much unedited, because where do you exactly find the time to do all these things, discussing the month of November's cases. If you want to hear me do this, then details of how you can become a supporter are dead easy. There's a link with the show notes as ever, or just look up the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on Patreon and find the creepy hand. That's your cue to go. Hopefully I'll catch you all again next Truer Crime Thursday when I'm back with another episode, but if it's not then, until we do next speak, I've been Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall catch you all soon. Cheers for joining me guys, and goodbye for now.